Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. Trigger warning. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend deals with the subject of divorce, child custody, domestic abuse, the attitude of public bodies and the family court. Some people may find the content of this episode distressing. Some episodes contain explicit language. My name is Selena. Who am I? I am white, I am black, I am brown, and I am much, much more. I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Sikh, I'm a Muslim, I am Catholic, and human to the core. I am every person who did what they were supposed to do, leave and tell. I am every person who was re-abused by the system. I am every person who was disbelieved by the police before I even began to speak my truth. I am every person who faced an unaccountable family court only to be silenced by their orders. I am Anonymous Us and here are our stories. So, for the third time that morning, I was stuck for what to do. The first was when we were accosted outside by Anita's husband's enablers. The second time was when I tried to challenge the security guard. And now this. I couldn't just sit here and allow us to be intimidated in our side room. And truthfully, I didn't think it was emotionally safe for her or myself to stay there. There was a supermarket opposite the court. So, I grabbed my bag. Come on, let's get a coffee. Of course, Anita immediately did that whole polite thing of, no, it's fine, I'm okay. In my experience, she was A, being polite, B, genuinely wasn't used to people being nice to her and didn't know how to accept it, or C, she didn't have any money, which was probably most likely. So I immediately followed with, my treat. She kept doing, no, no, it's fine. So I insisted, well, I need a coffee and you can't stay here alone, knowing full well she would have to come with me. Truthfully, we were in a catch-22 situation. If I allowed us to sit in that room, we were sitting ducks for further harassment. If I challenged any of the staff with regards to our safety, it would panic Anita. But if I took us out there, which did seem like the sensible decision, we'd have to walk past the main foyer, past them again dragging a heavy shopping trolley behind us. But, looking at all the options, I made the judgement call to get us out of there. As we were leaving the room, I saw a member of staff nearby and told them, we're just going to go to the supermarket opposite and get a coffee. I don't think it's safe for us to be here. I know Anita didn't want me to complain, but this was the least obvious way I could think of to let them know what was happening. I was expecting the staff member in question to pick up on what I had said and say, why, what's happening? And then, once I had told them, they would go off to sort it out. But instead, nothing. Just nodded, oh, okay, before asking, well, do you still want the room? Yes, of course we do. We're just going to go and grab a coffee and come back. To which he responded, there's a coffee machine in the foyer. And as I said, I don't think it's safe for us to be here. The staff member we were talking to was someone new, someone we hadn't spoken to so far, which meant 
Up until that point, every staff member had failed to pick up or acknowledge pre-hearing harassment, with this guy being the most oblivious. They genuinely don't understand why you need a side room. They'll give you one, but think it's okay to go into the foyer, to go and grab a coffee, where the very people who are scaring you are sat. Anyway, I then asked the staff member, would he like my number in case they needed anything? I barely got a response. Would someone be able to walk us out? I then asked. Someone meaning him, because I wanted him to come with us to see what was happening. But instead he replied, there's security down there, and walked off. So, as we headed out, again we had to walk past the main foyer, dragging a heavy shopping trolley behind us. And it all started again, the aggressive body language, the aggressive chest thrusting. It was all pitchforks and angry villagers. There was one time in a training programme, and I gave this scenario. And you know what the response I got? You shouldn't have gone for a coffee then. You shouldn't have left the room. And yes, maybe I did make the wrong judgement call by bringing her out here, but we weren't being kept safe in there either. Besides, my choice shouldn't have been the main focus. It is so ingrained in us that it is up to the victim to outmanoeuvre and work around the abuser's actions. Just like it did with abuse, with post-separation abuse, with post-separation economic abuse, post-separation documentation abuse, it is always down to the victim to outmanoeuvre the abuser's actions. Why? And they weren't letting up. Why would they let up? The more they were being allowed to do it, the more they were going to, and the more they were scaring us, the more they were loving it. Even after everything I've gone through, I still find the flying monkeys hard. In my time, I've been called a bitch. Who do I think I am? I've been told I deserve to be raped. I should have acid in my face, that would teach me a lesson. And it's not that they deliberately do it in front of court staff, but they're not worried about being overheard, because they know nothing will be done. That's why they behave like this, because they know they can. No one's put in a stop to it, which is why I wanted that staff member to come down with us. And on top of which, they're not seeing anything happen to their mate. I truly believe a lack of help from the police only empowers them. In their head, if the alleged abuser was wrong, why haven't they stopped him? Why haven't they arrested him? Why haven't the police charged him, even though in some cases they have? Why was he only given a suspended sentence? If the court staff thought this was wrong, they'd stop it, but they're not. So even they can see that they're in the right and she's a lying bitch. The flying monkeys, the enablers, see themselves as morally upright people. They genuinely believe that this is good versus evil, that they are doing God's work. And that is how they become dangerous, because they wind themselves up to such a point that there's no return, and they slowly and slowly become out of control, screaming at someone on a bus, pushing someone over in front of a court so she trips over a trolley, twice going into a side room that's been purposely designed to keep someone safe. Nobody sees any repercussions, abuser or enablers. Then the abuser becomes more empowered. The more empowered he becomes, the more the enablers are egged on. Let me explain what I mean. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being upset and 10 being extremely angry, 
flying monkeys and enablers are past ten. They are out of control. They are at full-scale rage. If we take Anita on the bus, for example, it's not like her mother-in-law came up to her, quite upset, slightly angry, and was speaking to her and slowly became more angry as she couldn't get Anita to see things her way, eventually losing her temper. With the flying monkeys in this situation, they're already past ten. They're at batshit crazy, and they fly in at batshit crazy. And the reason they're past the point of no return where their temper is concerned, the abuser has been constantly feeding them, so they are then wound up like a coil and ready to go. This is called severe grooming. There have been many times, more than I care to imagine, when I feared for my safety. I remember once saying to one of my bosses, what if someone follows me into the toilets? I worry that they know my face. What if they spot me outside? Because one day someone's going to hurt me or corner me. The disconnect between reality and their world in their head where they're fighting evil is truly petrifying. And if you think that doesn't scare me, it does. I'm not this brave Amazonian warrior woman. It's all bravado. Imposter syndrome at its best. So, Anita and I continued towards the entrance, and two of them began walking behind us very closely, following us, and all I kept thinking was, what if someone pushes me? Because they can. We saw this morning. No one is going to stop them. Not now, not after. No one will care enough to intervene. Inside, I was shaking like a leaf, so I don't underestimate, not for one moment, what this must be like to be stood in Anita's shoes. So, if the court staff weren't going to do anything, I would have to. I swung round, bravado kicking in, looking them straight in the eye. If anyone follows me, I'll call the police. Of course, they were doing that, ooh, look at her, stressy knickers. But it was bravado on their part too. But. In that moment, it did stop and make them think, because, chances are, they've never had to think about their behaviour. They've never had to think about the potential consequences. I just want to bring something up here, just to let you know, that if you are a victim survivor, and you ever feel threatened in court, you can call the police. I had no idea, because no one tells you. The courts don't tell you. We're useless. Call the police. Women's organisations don't tell you, but I will. So if you're being threatened in court and the staff won't act, call the police. And I always recommend this. In fact, I've done it myself, where I know it won't traumatise the person I'm accompanying. You see, in reality, whether the police do anything or not, it gets registered. It goes into statistics. And at some point, a journalist will pick this up. How comes there seems to be an above-average call-out to the family court? At some point, the borough commander will be having words with court management. How comes there's a high volume of calls to your court? You are well within your rights to call the police and press charges, and that includes the solicitors and barristers. Talking of which, I swung round and caught the eye of the barrister, who was sitting there smirking, and I repeated my threat. If this doesn't stop... I'm calling the police. It always shocks me how many times I've seen barristers go along with this bad behaviour. Now, there are two types of enablers stroke flying monkeys. 
those who have been duped and groomed, and that includes the ones who truly believe they're far too intelligent to be manipulated, they're the most dangerous ones. And the second type of enablers and flying monkeys are the ones who know what they're doing and they understand its effect, i.e. the legal team. Now, the solicitors will love this, especially if they're already using dirty tricks, i.e. post-separation legal abuse. But the barrister is someone who's only hired for the hearing. They are usually not part of the entire divorce process. So why do they love this? Love sitting and watching this toxic pressure cooker? What's in it for them to support bullying behaviour by the enablers and flying monkeys? Because it plays into their hands. The enablers and flying monkeys do the prepping, knocking the victim survivor off balance. So, once they're in the hearing, they go in for the kill and finish the job. And that's how they win their case. They need the enablers to help the victim survivor fall apart prior to the hearing starting. In my experience, this tends to happen when the defence barristers are not the litigators they think they are and do not have the skills to argue the facts so they go down the character assassination route. However, sometimes you do get a barrister who is an utter professional. They argue the facts of the case. They don't have time for any of these games and nonsense. And only on one occasion did I see a barrister step up. She saw what was happening and put a stop to the bullying. Then went and got the victim survivor a cup of tea and asked if there was a spare room she could sit in. And when this barrister went in, Oh, she took no prisoners. She did what she had to do, provide a robust defence for her client. But she was so confident in her litigation skills that she didn't need to partake and encourage all this bullying prior. Wouldn't the family courts be a great place if more barristers were like this? In my time, I've seen barristers become flying monkeys and enablers. I've known barristers to threaten victim survivors themselves, told them, if you go in there and say anything, I will have the kids taken off you. And by then, the victim survivor has been let down by every organisation. So, they believe the barrister because no one's coming to help them to keep them safe. And me personally, I have lost all faith that there is any law, any force or any member of the judiciary that will protect a victim on the day of court. The one thing that I always say is I don't understand why there isn't a limit to how many people you can bring with you. Apart from counsel or a Mackenzie friend, the rule should be you can only bring one person to support you, unless they are a witness. And I'll never understand why it's not been implemented, when pre-hearing bullying has been a constant complaint by victim survivors. And don't tell me you judges and magistrates don't know this technique and you don't know this is happening outside, because you do. Anyway, back to Anita and I. We walked over to the supermarket to grab a coffee, and yes, dragging the heavy shopping trolley behind us. No one followed us. I honestly thought they would, but I knew threatening them with the police would work. Or, subtly threatening the barrister with the police would help. We got some hot drinks and walked back, and, once again, had to pass the mob and although they weren't being so obvious since I threatened the police, you could still feel the anger, and it was a shame that it wasn't the court who put a stop to this. Once outside the door to our private room, I went to open it, but I couldn't, 
It was locked. I looked around and saw an usher. Excuse me, the door's locked. To which I was expecting a, sorry for the confusion, I'll get it opened. They probably thought you didn't want it any more, came the reply, and then went to walk off. Well, we do want it. This was typical, and nothing I hadn't seen before. Remember when I said that the courts don't want to give you a room, to a point where they had to pass a law? Well, once you do have a room, they will spend their whole time looking for excuses to snatch it back. They are itching to take it back. I have seen private rooms taken away from victim survivors for no other reason than she needed to go to the toilet to change her sanitary towel. Oh, you left it so I didn't think you wanted it any more, is always the response. You are expected to sit there and not even require the toilet. Anyway, I asked the usher, could you please get it opened? I don't know where the person with the key is. So I said, okay, but could you at least try and find them? To which he responded, you'll be called in a minute so there's no point, and walked off. Even though it was obvious this wasn't the end of the conversation. It wouldn't surprise me if they're thinking, well, if you left the room, you couldn't have been that scared. And again, it buys into that whole theory. If it was that bad, you would have left. It couldn't have been that bad, you stayed. If it was that bad, you would have stayed hidden in this room, not even requiring the toilet. And this tells you how ill-informed the courts are. And, as this sector does not understand the dynamics of abuse, it will all be misunderstood. And all the while, I'm concerned about Anita's state of mind. Come on, let's wait outside, I said to her. And once again, we had to weave back through the foyer, and yes, wheeling the heavy shopping trolley behind us. Once we were outside, we stood in the autumn breeze, finishing our hot drinks. We were barely there for a few minutes before we were called. The usher charged outside. I've been looking for you. You're meant to be in your room. Seriously? What kind of circus is going on here? So yes, once again, we had to go back into the foyer so we could enter the courtroom, and yes, dragging the heavy shopping trolley behind us. And this was it, the hearing, when Anita would finally be in front of a magistrate. And let the real trauma games begin. So, this brings us to the end of part one, just some of the key incidences that happens to a victim survivor before they reach this moment. Just a few select incidences, because trust me, I could have written over a hundred episodes purely focusing on what happens to victim survivors before they get to this point. And that doesn't include children, male victims, extended families, yet. But I promise you I will get to them. Because it's not about pitting men and women against each other. Who can be victims? Who can be abusers? That's just convenient. Because while we are all infighting amongst each other, the judiciary, the courts, magistrates, judges, staff, the police, organisations, all get away with not being fit for purpose. And that is where our focus needs to be. And I just want to say one last thing to judges and magistrates. Before getting to this point, when a victim survivor is in front of you, do you know how many call it a day, withdraw their cases and don't come back 
because it's too much to put themselves through. It's a strong message they continually get. No one cares enough to keep them safe. So think of how many victim survivors you never get to see. So, for the small percentage that you do get to see, the courage it has taken them to get to a point where they are finally stood in front of you, be decent enough to admire that. Because despite everything they have been through, there is still a part of them that believes in you and hopes that you can help them. Do you understand the responsibility that you have towards them and their children? And as for everyone else, I hope you join me for series two, where you will really see irresponsible conduct in the judiciary. So goodbye from Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. If you are struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please go to www.iamlip.com where you can receive further information and help. Disclaimer. The stories mentioned in this episode are fictional accounts based on and adapted from real life experiences. Due to the repetitive nature of the family court, any similarities to any other cases are purely coincidental.